Welcome to The Ambitious Introvert, the leading growth and development podcast for the estimated 56% of us who recharge by going inwards. Our purpose is to help you manage your social battery and own your energy so you can reach your true potential in your business, your career, or your life. I'm your host, Emma Louise Parks, a former air traffic controller, entrepreneur, and a success coach with over 15 years experience. I've supported hundreds of introverts like you who dream big and are ready to take action towards making those dreams a reality without compromising their energy in the process. Each week, my guests and I will be sharing tips, tricks, and hacks on how to build your resilience, master your mindset, and cultivate self-leadership. Skills that will help you reach your goals without trying to be someone that you're not. We'll also be sharing valuable lessons and insights from our own personal experiences, all focused on one thing, helping you own your energy to reach your potential. Welcome back, ambitious introverts. I'm Emma Louise, and thank you for joining me for this guest episode. Now, the ambitious amongst us, if we want to reach our potential, we want to make moves, we want to create the life that we want, and we want to be fulfilled in doing so, then one of the biggest skills that is essential to this is the ability to effectively communicate what we want and what we need. And yet miscommunication and this inability to ask to have our needs met is so, so prevalent. I'm thrilled to be talking to Kate Brown today. Kate is the founder of Calm at Work and she provides coaching, mediation and training and speaking all about reducing stress in the workplace the importance of rest for long-term well-being and how that leads to our success. So very much values aligned with the Ambitious Introvert brand. And Kate is particularly passionate about what she calls compassionate communication, which is what we are going to be discussing today. So stay tuned to hear Kate describe exactly what this type of communicating is, why it's so important, and how you can cultivate it into your relationships, whether that is as a family, whether that is with your colleagues or whether that is with your loved one. There are so many great points that Kate makes in this and so many great resources that she mentions. So enjoy the episode. Kate, it is such a pleasure to have you here today on the Ambitious Introvert podcast after what feels like about a year of trying to schedule a date. So welcome. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I think it just goes to show sometimes I, you know, I have clients and they'll reach out to be a guest on a podcast for someone, or I have clients that reach out to make a connection for their career and they feel like it's not happening quickly enough. And, you know, they're, oh, they mustn't want me and and all of this. And actually, sometimes there's just logistics and life and different things get in the way. And it always comes about in the end. I say timing is everything. Yeah. Timing (laughs) is everything. So I'm really excited to chat to you today about compassionate communication because the, well, every job that I've had really, I was going to say the two jobs that I've had before I started this business, communication was critical in both of them. First off, I was a flight attendant for six years and I was 18 when I started that job. So being able to communicate effectively at that age where I was dealing with people that were much older, that were maybe nervous flyers or drunk, which was you know quite common. 
And then obviously I was an air traffic controller. So communication was very critical and spoken communication was our literal only way of communicating with the pilots. So the effectiveness yeah. of that was, you know, key. So I've always been interested in it. I studied communications at college before before I became a flight attendant. So I'm very, very excited to have this conversation because I know the power of communicating effectively and understanding yeah. what that means and how it affects us all. So for anyone listening that's thinking, okay, I'm curious, but I don't really get it. Can you tell us what compassionate communication actually means? Yes. So compassionate communication, as I talk about it, is basically all based on the work of Marshall Rosenberg. Now he calls it nonviolent communication. But he never wanted to call it that because nonviolent communication is saying what it isn't rather than what it is. And so compassionate communication was sort of always what he wanted to call it, but it never sort of stuck. So I just call it that because I think it is that it is compassionate communication. And I think sort of defining a little bit what compassion means helps you understand what this means. And for me, certainly anyway, compassion is meeting people where they are and meeting myself where I am. So being okay with where I am right now and where people are right now, not sort of trying to hold them to a higher ideal or trying to hold myself to a higher ideal, not sort of beating myself up because I intellectually know better, but at this moment in time can't access that. Sort of this idea, as Brené Brown says, of choosing to believe that everyone is doing the best they can with the resources available to them at any one moment in time and, and having that as an active choice, an active choice of a belief that that's what you're choosing to believe. To me, that's what compassion is. So if you're starting from that place, then the communication you have with people is all about making life better, making life better for you and the other person. So it's enhancing life all the time. That's the aim of it. And it's possible when you meet people where they are. I feel like the word that kept coming up for me or the term that kept coming up for me, should I say, is lack of judgment. Yes. And I think I think judgment is our automatic because we're human and that is what we do. Humans do make very snap, quick judgment decisions because that's the way our brain is wired and that's the way we need to be in order to survive in the world, basically. But it does mean that we don't always see things as they are. We see things as we think they are because that's the way our brain works, you know Joe Dispenza says sort of by the time you're 35, 95% of your brain and your working is completely unconscious. It's automatic. So it's the it's the reason, like I do this and it scares me. It's the reason why you can sort of get in your car on a Saturday morning to go to the shops and end up at school because you've done a school run for five days before and you've just automatically done that journey. And you have no recollection whatsoever of how you've driven that. And it's hugely scary because you think, wow, where was I? And where you were, was your brain had gone into automatic because it's, easier. It uses less energy for your brain. So anything that you can do to conserve energy, your body's going there. And so judgments are a part of that. You know, you make a judgment so that you can make a decision quickly and you can sort of box things off and move on with your life. It's great, except when it isn't, except when it gets you into situations you don't want to be in or makes you avoid situations you need to be addressing and where you just get things wrong. And therefore the trajectory of your life goes in a different direction just because of a miscommunication or a misjudgment. So yeah, this idea of we are all going to be judging. It's going to be our natural reaction. That's okay. Let's meet ourselves where we are <laughs> in this place. And then just maybe take a beat, you know, and just say, okay, this is where I am. And I think peeling it back, it's the idea of, okay, why is this where I am? And that for me 
is the teaching of compassionate communication NVC. There's a very specific tool and it's a very specific way of thinking about an interaction and thinking about a conversation. And it's called the OFNR statement. O-F-N-R. O is your observation. What are you seeing? What is your observation? And it has to be objective. So no story, no judgment, no belief in there. Then it's my feeling. How do I feel in response to this external thing that is happening? And then it's, okay, feelings are just a communication technique. My body's just using feelings to help to communicate with me. They're neither good nor bad. But the ones that we tend to deem good, that's because a need is getting met. And the ones that we tend to deem bad or negative, that's because a need is not getting met. So all feelings are doing are communicating with us about our needs. So if we can identify how we feel, which is easier said than done, (laughs) then we can ask the question, why do I feel that way? And then we can identify what need is or is not getting met. And once we can do that, which again, sounds easier than it might actually be in practice, then we can say, okay, so what do I need to do? What requests do I need to make? And who do I need to make it of? Is it of myself or is it of someone else to get that need fulfilled? Because once that need is fulfilled, my life is enhanced. My life is better. And that's the point. If we can fulfill needs always, everywhere we go in every conversation, we enhance life. We make life better for everybody. And that's the point, really. (laughs) I love it. And I think there's a big part of that, which is not being afraid to ask for what you need. Like you say, you know, I I appreciate that's towards the end of, of the cycle, but ultimately you don't want to go through all of the points and then go, oh, but I'm, I don't want to ask or I don't want to bother them or or I'm going to sound like an idiot if I if I say that. So I feel like there has to be not only this self-awareness and this observational awareness, but also a strength in that communication for you to say, okay, to get my needs met and for this to be a good interaction for everyone, I need to speak up. Yes, exactly that. And I think for a lot of people, they feel or they have the story or belief taken in a childhood, probably most of these things tend to be taken in a childhood of to get my needs met is a selfish thing. So I like to use an example, which is from the flight world (laughs) of where we can maybe flip this on its head. Yeah. So when we go on an aeroplane and they say, they go through all the um, safety instructions and they say about the oxygen. If the oxygen has to fall, you put your own mask on first. And I think most people can understand why in a plane setting. So if I put my oxygen mask on and I'm, you know, traveling with a young child and in the time it takes me to put my mask on, the child has gone unconscious. Yes, it's going to be upsetting, but I can still reach an oxygen mask onto them and I can even lift them off the plane. However, if I do the reverse because it's selfish of me to meet my needs first and I must meet their needs first, I put it on them and then I fall unconscious. What we then have is a very distressed child who can't help me. They can't reach to get a mask on me. They can't carry me out. And I become another adult casualty for the other adult casualties, the other adults who are not casualties there, sorry, to have to deal with. And I think on a plane setting, we can get our head around that. But then I think what we don't do is we don't take that into the real world. We don't realize that if we are not meeting our own needs, we become casualties for other people to have to deal with. And we start to expect other people to meet our needs for us. And what's most damaging, I feel, 
is that we often expect the people who really can't meet those needs like children to meet them. And it it's how we can it's how we perpetuate sort of generational cycles of things we don't want to be doing, really. So yeah, I think it's a partly a mind shift change that your need is important. Fulfilling your need is important. And Marshall Rosenberg in, in his book, which I highly recommend, <laughs> says, you know, when we can give from a place of fullness and from a place of wanting to give, then it's true giving. If we give because we feel we have to, or we should, or we ought to, which all words, which are red flags in my vocabulary, should, ought, have, <laughs> um, then we end up frustrated and we end up not enjoying the people that we live with and that are around us because we start to resent them and we get frustrated with them. And it comes out in all sorts of ways that aren't actually related to the thing that's going on. And so it becomes a little untruthful because the things we tend to blow up about aren't actually the real issue. We've sort of let it go and let it go and let it go. And then there'll be a small trigger, that sort of straw that breaks a camel's back analogy. There'll be that small trigger that blows it all up. But that's not really what's going on. What's really going on is maybe you've got 10 years of unmet needs, but whose responsibility is it to meet those needs? You know, somewhere I see this in like the personal development space and where it's maybe not communicated very effectively is this talk of self-care and filling your cup like we're talking about now. Yeah, yeah. But they're very much like, oh, fill your cup, like have a bubble bath and treat yourself to a glass of wine or, you know, do these luxurious things. And that me- that might well be what filling your cup looks like to some people, but it's quite often, hey, like, don't feel guilty if you want to scroll social media. You deserve some me time. And a lot of the things that they're perpetrating are actually numbing or distraction techniques to take us away from what our actual needs are. And your actual needs might not be quite as sexy as, you know, having a nice bubble bath with essential oils. It might be saying to your partner, hey, I just need you to recognize how much I've done towards the house this week or something like that. That, you know, but we kind of skirt over that sometimes in the personal development space. And it's all like, you know, oh, yeah, just relax or, you know, go to yoga and then everything will be perfect. And it doesn't address actually speaking up about actual needs. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of the problem is we don't have the the emotional language. So we don't have the feeling language and we don't have the need language. But there are lists. They exist. Lists are brilliant. So the Centre for Nonviolent Communication produced these lists. So you can literally print out a list of feelings and a list of needs and you can sit there and look at them and go, okay, how do I feel? (laughs) And just read through them until the one punches you in the gut that you don't want to admit. That's the one. And then you go and you look at the needs list. Okay, I'm feeling this way. Why? What is my need? And it's really, really important to identify the need because one feeling does not equate to a need. So for instance, I might feel angry because I am hungry. So my need is um, food. I would get angry if I'm too hungry. Absolutely. Same if here. I, yeah. If I assume every time I'm angry, I'm hungry and I eat, it won't necessarily help that. It won't necessarily fulfill my need because I'm not always angry because I'm hungry. Sometimes I'm angry because my need for justice has gone unmet. If I just eat, that doesn't address the need for justice. And so the anger persists because the need persists unmet. And so 
in order to, and this is another way, you know, when people say sort of feel your feelings and move through them and process them. And what does it mean? Well, it means figure out what that feeling is telling you and address that because that is how you move through the feeling. That's how you allow the feeling to move through you and to move on rather than getting it stuck in your body. And yeah, the needs are difficult to identify if you don't have the language for them. So get the lists is my number one top tip on this one. And you are absolutely right as well. We often say, look after yourself, self-care, well-being is a bubble bath. Well, it might be if your need is for alone time or if your need is for sort of sensory input. But if your need is for, as you've said, to be acknowledged, to be recognised, to be seen, to be heard, to be understood, then going by yourself into a bath is not going to fulfil those needs. So you're going to feel no better necessarily when you come out of that bath because the needs are still there, still unfulfilled, and you're still going to feel really annoyed at your partner because you haven't addressed those. You've had a nice bath, which is lovely, and you've maybe had a bit of time away from them, which might be useful, but you've not actually addressed the needs underneath. And it's so important to do that. Yeah. This is where self-awareness is the start of everything. You know, I say this as a coach, that self-awareness is the first step to every change, every transformation. And nothing can happen without that because you don't have you don't have a starting ground to to go from if you do not have that awareness. So some people may come into a coaching relationship and they don't have the awareness. They're just like, I'm miserable, I'm unhappy, I want to make this change or I want to get this promotion or I want to start this business, but I I don't know where to start or I don't know what's holding me back. Other people have a lot of self-awareness already and they're like, oh, okay, so I've identified that I have this story that I'm telling myself about doing this thing. And, you know, both of those are fine, but you have to have that awareness. And that is so key because as you say, you'll be trying to solve the wrong problem. Otherwise, you'll be be going in the bath to solve I'm hungry, which isn't going to work. No. And so many of the behaviors, so again, Marshall Rosenberg tells us that every behavior is an attempt to fulfill a need. Every behavior that anyone ever does is an attempt to fulfill a need because needs needs drive our behaviors. The problem is so many of us are so disconnected from what our actual need is that the behavior we end up doing doesn't address that need and sometimes can make it less likely that we get our need fulfilled. So for instance, another example I always give here is with my teenage daughter. When she was a younger teenager, she would be quite screamy and door slammy. And really what she wanted was a hug. But when she screamed at me, it pushed me further away. I was less likely to want to give her a hug. And, you know, when she wasn't in that heightened state of emotion, we spoke about it. And I said, if you just say to me, I want a hug, I will always give you a hug. If you scream in my face, I am unlikely to do that for you. And so we moved on to the point where she would just walk into a room and very sullenly sort of say, hug. And I would give her a hug. (laughs) It was moving on. It was better. And now she will, you know, she's older again. And now she'll say, I really need a hug. Can I have a hug? And it's just about identifying that the behaviours that we do need to fulfil those needs if we're going to make life better. I feel like it's not the same thing, but the five love languages is kind of similar to this in this, you know, people have different love languages of what they value the most. So someone may really value gift giving and that's the way they show their love and their partner might not. Their partner might be, you know, uh, physical touch is the thing. So, you know, this person keeps buying all these expensive gifts to their to their partner and their partner's not 
like responding and they're like, oh, well, you know, I'm trying, I'm buying the gifts because that's what they would want. But all yes. the partner wants is a hug or for them to hold their hand in public or, you know, give the spoon them or whatever the thing is. And it's this, you you both feel like you're doing the right thing, but there's a communication block there because your needs are different. Exactly. So in that scenario, which is perfect, if, if you know, the person who needed physical touch was to say, I have an unfulfilled need for physical touch. Can I have a hug? You know, and even they might say, when you buy me a gift, I feel sad because I have a need for touch. Will you give me a hug? And that will allow the other person to know, okay, well, buying the gift isn't helping that other person. And then they might be able to say, when you, you know, I would, I would enjoy a gift. You know, you can sort of start to open up the conversations a bit. And also on that, you've got love languages, also got apology languages. Different people apologize in different ways, which again can get people into, you know, tricky water if they feel they've apologized and someone else feels they haven't, because it depends what you look for in an apology. So that's a really important thing as well. And being very, very clear in your request is going to get you more likely what you need and what you want. So, you know, if I need an apology that sounds like I'm really sorry, I'm taking responsibility, I, I did that wrong. But what I hear is, oh, I'm really sorry, here's a gift, then it's not doing it for me. So there are different, like I say, I'm not so, I can't think of the actual terminologies for all the different apology language, but again, there, I think there may be seven of those. Wow. So there are different ways that people apologize and some people are, you know, responsibility takers and some people it's just, an, just say a sorry and that's okay. Other people need to uh, see that the person is changing what they're doing in some way so it's not just that they need to take responsibility but they then need to do something you know so different people are requiring different things and that's what the request is about be really specific in your request and ask for what you want not what you don't want oh this is fascinating I love this apology language I remember someone apologizing to me in my job years ago because they had met they had put me in an awkward situation because of a mistake that they had made and their way of apologizing was to come up to me and give me a hug mm. and say, oh, you know, I didn't mean it or something like that. What I wanted was for them to say, yes, I'm sorry, I should not have, have done that thing that I did. But there wasn't any of that. It was almost like, oh, let's let's have a hug and then it will all be better. And I was like, yeah. no, <laughs> this isn't enough. <laughs> yeah. And I think... If we just say this isn't enough, it can sort of come across as a little bit confrontational and as a little bit like, well, what do you want? Whereas if we say what we what we want, if we say what we need, if we say I would really I really need to hear you or I would really appreciate you taking responsibility for this action, could you do that? You know, that's um, really being very specific. And and actually, as I'm as I'm hearing myself say that, that isn't very specific because what does taking responsibility mean? What is it that I actually want to hear you say? You know, so be really specific. Be as specific as you would be when you're giving a five-year-old an instruction so that the five-year-old, if a five-year-old couldn't understand it, it's not specific enough. And people think say things like, well, will you respect me? That's not specific. What does that look like? How do I know if I've fulfilled that brief for you or not? And again, would you apologize? What do you need in an apology? What does that sound like? What does that look like? Be specific about what it is you require because then you know what you're asking and the other person knows what you're asking. And the other person, therefore, knows what they're saying yes or no to. Because that's a really key point as well. The request is only a request if the other person can say no. If the other person can't say no, it's not a request, it's a demand. So you have to be very clear in your own mind what it is 
are you making a demand or are you making a request? And demands might be okay, but how do you feel about a demand? And then how do you think therefore the other person might feel about a demand? You know, and it's <laughs> it's that kind of thing. Yeah. Lay- layers and layers of it. I do I do love the apology one though. I'm really glad you brought that up because you know, people will say, Oh, well, I'm sorry if I upset you. Mm-hmm. And actually that's not what the person wants to hear. They want to hear, I'm sorry for what I did. The action was wrong. Or, yeah. you know, I'm I'm sorry. Old people say, well, I'm, so, I'm sorry that you found out about it like that. And it's like, well, it's not really about that. It's about the fact that you did whatever, whatever the thing is. So I think this will make a lot of people curious because we've all had those apologies and then we don't feel good after it. In fact, we sometimes feel more annoyed and we're like, well, I know they've said sorry, but it still doesn't feel like closure. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And again, when you feel that, it's about identifying, okay, well, what exactly am I feeling? Is it is it anger? Is it frustration? Is it sadness? Is it annoyed? What exactly is the feeling? And then what is the need? And then speak to that. Speak to that need. How does that need get fulfilled? And the thing about this way of communicating, which I love so much, it's Marshall Rosenberg used it for mediation and big mm. high up mediation, sort of in Middle East sort of mediation, you know, where lives have literally been taken and lost. But he also used it in, in couples counselling and that kind of thing. And he said from the moment each side can hear, truly hear the feelings and needs of the other, 20 minutes to solution, no matter what the problem is, It could take you three years to get to that point. But from the point that they can hear the feeling and the need of the other person, solution is 20 minutes. Because we all have the same feelings and we all have the same needs. And when we truly connect on that level, we stop othering and everyone becomes a human again. And then solution is possible. Very fortuitous that we're recording this today because I went out for brunch and I sat in my local coffee shop and there were two people on the table behind me and they're having quite a, a heated discussion you know, it's a bit of bit of a debate uh about money and centralized currencies and whether cash was necessary and it was it was, it was quite deep for for brunch but <laughs> i realized quite quite early on that they were arguing against each other but it wasn't the same they weren't having the same arguments so one of them was trying to say digital money is the same as physical money. And the other person wasn't saying, no, it's not. The other person was saying, but we shouldn't have digital money. And they'd gone on for about five minutes. And they couldn't help but overhear this. And I was like, they're, they're having a different argument, but they're having the same conversation. And there was a point that I heard this woman say, oh, okay, I understand you now. Yes, I understand what you're saying. Oh, yes, I I agree with you. And they realised that they were on the same page about something. But then they went on to argue about something else. However, the point yeah. is there was that mis- miscommunication and they were both obviously very passionate about their feelings about this you know, specific money thing. That they were so, they were almost like bullish at each other. But then yes. when they, and I could hear it and I was like, they're not listening to each other because they, they're actually arguing for different things and it doesn't make sense but as soon as they were like oh I see what you're saying now the tone changed and it, it was very much like yes we're on the same wavelength so interesting yeah and I think that that sort of phrase you're not you're not listening to me or you're not hearing me I mean how many times do we say that within a conversation with somebody especially if we've gotten to a sort of a slightly argumentative sort of stage and that in itself can be a real trigger to be I am listening I am you know and yet what we're really sort of saying is you're not 
connecting with me. You know, you're not maybe, I mean, potentially you're, you're lit as your example, you're literally actually having a different argument. You're, you're literally talking about something completely different and thinking it's the same thing. But sometimes it's about, you know, the, the topic and we're on the same topic, but you're not connecting with how I feel about this and what I need about this. And maybe it's because I'm not actually articulating that. And that's where this radical self-responsibility comes in because, or just radical responsibility, doesn't even have to be self-responsibility. Because if I don't communicate to you my true feeling and my true need, and the reason I might not, by the way, is because it's incredibly vulnerable to do that, like hugely vulnerable. I'm laying myself open and bare to do that. But if I don't do that, I can't expect you to know that information. And that is where we go that's where we go wrong because we expect the other person to know how we feel and, and what we need. And especially we expect it when we don't even know it ourselves. And this is what would happen so much when I was a flight attendant is people would smoke in the toilet or drink too much or become a little bit aggravated. And they didn't know why they would just, act, they were acting up. And obviously we were trying to mediate and calm them down. And we're in this, you know, aluminium tube at 35,000 feet, and it's not the best place for an altercation. But quite often the people were quite scared of flying. Mm-hmm. That was a very, yeah. very common one. And they either didn't want to admit that, especially, you know, a grown man doesn't necessarily want to say, oh, I'm really scared of this. And it was about having a conversation and trying to maybe get to the root of it if if we could, but some people weren't obviously going for that. But if not, to be like, what do you, what can we do to make this more comfortable because this situation can't continue to escalate and quite often they'd be like oh just well if if you just leave me alone or something like that and then it was like okay well maybe that's enough to get through the hour of the flight or or whatever yeah yeah but it's so interesting that it was quite often I'm I feel scared or I don't like the turbulence or something like that but how rather than communicating that it's easier to you know have a drink or get a little bit angry yes because if you are admitting fear you then have, and then if you follow what I've just been saying, you ask, well, why am I, why am I fearful? Well, my need for safety probably is not getting met in a tube 35,000 feet above the ground. I don't feel safe. How can I fulfill that need for safety? And in that situation, maybe you can't. And therefore this disassociation from it all through drinking or whatever becomes a really viable option. And this is the thing, like the behaviours we do are an attempt to fill, fulfill a need. They don't always make that happen. It doesn't, sometimes we're vastly away from that. But every behavior we have and every habit we have and every coping mechanism we have has been exactly that. It's been an attempt to fulfill a need, regardless of how well or not it's done it. And therefore, all the things we've done and all the beliefs we have and all the stories we have, they're all there to fulfill needs, to help us survive. They've all got us to where we are now, essentially. And I personally have a very different take on sort of shadow sides and and that kind of thing to what I see as the the, the general. My view is that we embrace everything because it's our past self that has got I've got us to here. And that shadow side isn't something that we want to be shaming or ostracizing. It's something we want to be embracing and bringing in and saying thank you because you got me here. This coping mechanism got me to this point in my life here today, and. I can say it might not get me any further, so it's time to change it. But if I shame it and deny its presence, I'm never going to move on. So it's going to be that unconscious in my brain all the time, driving me, driving me, driving me. 
Yeah. I feel like that integration piece for things like shadow work and inner child work and that acceptance is Mm -hmm. huge. And the same with ego. You know, ego gets a bad rep in the personal development space, but ego's there for a purpose. Ego does good things. I think the word has been associated with this someone that's got an overinflated ego or, you know, they're doing something from a place of ego and trying to prove themselves. But all of these things, like you say, they they help us because we act in a certain way. We have patterns, we have behaviors. And then when we're able to see and highlight and say, oh, that's why I was doing that. Well, now I can integrate it and now I can, you know, decide whether that's useful to me or not and move forwards from it. So yeah, I, I definitely see that with with the shadow work and it's all part of the human experience of learning and learning how to not just how to communicate but how to live yeah absolutely absolutely yeah so you said about high level negotiation like literal like war zone negotiation how can this be used in more of a day to day setting say in within companies or within a relationship so within companies i think it's the way to change a culture. So if if a company embraced this way of sort of communicating, it's definitely a way to change a culture. It's a way to embrace conflict. It's a way to understand what is truly going on for everybody and to get a real deepening of interpersonal relationships. And given that 50% of all work-related illness is due to stress, anxiety, depression, and that like 64% of that is due to the work people do and the relationships they have with the people they work with. Improving relationships and improving the work environment is going to have a positive impact, you know. So I think that this is a really powerful and massively underused tool in the workplace at the minute. But it would look like for me, things like the conversations that managers maybe have in performance reviews and that kind of thing, like the way those conversations perhaps are structured, but even just the day-to-day language, you know, like when we're asking about, for instance, you know, people tend to say, how are, how, how are you? How are you? You know, yeah, great, fine. End of conversation. Well, what if the, the culture was that how are you is a genuine, real question. And I really want to know how you're feeling and what your need is right now. Because that is what I'm asking you. I'm asking you to connect with me and be vulnerable with me. But the only way I think that happens in a culture is when it comes from the top. So when the management adopts this more open way of being and stop, you know, it's almost like I understand in culture, you know, in in companies, if you're the manager, you've got responsibility and you've got certain things you have to do, but you're still a human. And if you lose your humanity, you lose the ability to connect with the people you are managing. And that, strains everything and also can really affect the culture so I think if 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 it comes from the top it filters down and it sort of tends to be that way and and personally within a family setting if I sort of think of myself as the manager in the family I'm giving myself that title (laughs) I love that you just promoted yourself I just promoted myself that I'm the CEO of this family but when I learned this and I implemented this I didn't have to sit down and teach anybody else about it I just changed the way I spoke And it changed everything and everyone started to get on board with it. I didn't have to teach it. I just understood that if I was really clear with what my feeling and my need was and my request, then things went better. And other people like my kids and my husband started to notice that this was easier and this was a way that they could communicate. And I have gone on to, you know, do a little bit more 
active teaching with them about how to do it. And I have, I have used it to mediate between my girls, you know, very effectively. And we found out things that we would never have found out about how they're really feeling and what's really going on for them. And the stories they're really telling themselves about this external situation that seems very small, but has triggered this huge explosion, you know. And I think that's that's another key thing about using it in a workplace. People can start to be really seen. And so you can start to know what their true abilities are, you know, and what and tap into that untapped potential. And it can massively be beneficial in a company. And also things like, you know, if someone's in the wrong role, if they have the ability to say that, and it, even if they're saying it to themselves, even if they have the confidence to say it to themselves, you know, I have an unfulfilled need here and it would be better fulfilled in a different role. I'm going to apply for that role or I'm going to leave here because this isn't fulfilling me and I'm going to apply for somewhere else. And if you're in a company big enough that you can move people around to where they're better suited and where they're happier and where their needs are getting met, then brilliant. But you're not going to know that unless you're having those conversations. I'm so on board with you about the the top-down leadership. That's why, you know, here at the Ambitious Introverts, we've got workshops and programs for senior leaders because if they understand introverts, they understand their energy, they understand how they best perform and what criteria and conditions that they need to reach their potential. It's not like everyone needs educating because if those leaders then treat introverts a certain way or understand that they have a different need or just because they're not networking and socializing the same way as an extrovert doesn't mean that they're not right for the role or they're not putting the effort in, it trickles down. Yeah, yeah. And I think, again, in terms of introverts, if you can say, I have a need for alone time, so my request is that I can have some alone time. You know, if we have a culture where we can say what our needs are, you know, be honest and be honest with ourselves first and foremost and accept where we're sitting. Don't beat ourselves up that we need to be somewhere else or we should be somewhere else or we, they're doing it, so why can't I? Well, that's not their need. This is my need right now. And my need right now is not going to be the same as my need tomorrow either. That's another thing. And my need right now in this situation is not going to be the same tomorrow in that same situation because it depends what I'm bringing to that situation. And that's another thing to understand. You know, it's it's this too shall pass is one of my probably all-time favourite little quote things to remember because it really is true. Everything passes. <laughs> and just because this is true right now, it does not mean it's going to be true forever. So both good and bad, you know, whichever way you want to determine what is good and what is bad, you know, it all passes. So enjoy it and also don't panic because it will pass. <laughs> I love that. I think that is a perfect place to wrap up because it's such a powerful quote and it is so true. Everything is transient and everything moves on. Kate, you have obviously shared some great tips with us today. You've also shared some great resources like the books and the lists. I, If you will send those over, I'll pop them in the show notes so oh, yes, everyone will have access for them. Of course, before I let you go, I am going to ask you, well, firstly, do you consider yourself an introvert? Yes, absolutely. And I actually have the same letters as you. I, I, I saw your things. I was oh, like, oh, I'm a fellow INFJ. There you <laughs> yes. go. That's like, it makes sense. We like the same things. So I love, I love that. Yeah. So yeah. as an introvert, how do you own your energy to make sure that you can work to your potential? So there's, there was so many things I could have picked here, like so many things. But I think the thing that is so fundamental to me was when I really learned how to breathe. And by breathe, I mean breathe out let go, release. 
so many of us breathe so tight and so high up in our chests and we're sort of gasping for air and sort of holding and clinging on. And when I really learned how to exhale and be okay with that exhale, that more was going to come in and it was going to be fine, that really changed. Physically, I, I was very, very poorly. I had bronchiectasis, so I had a lot of chest issues and stuff. And it physically has, has helped me with that as well. But in terms of the energy, you know, it's not always about taking in, taking in, taking in, getting more, grabbing, holding, tight, squeezing. It's that release. It's that relax. It's that rest. It's that moment of letting go. And also really importantly for me, letting go of what is not mine. So letting go of all that energy that I've picked up that isn't my energy. That's not how I feel. (laughs) That was somebody else's. Thank you very much. Not mine. And really just, yeah, letting it go. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Exhale in like big capital letters. Kate, thank you so much for being here today on The Ambitious Introvert. I'll drop all of your links in the show notes as well if anyone wants to connect with you. And thank you once again for sharing all of your knowledge and wisdom. Thank you so much. Thank you for staying with Kate and I all the way till the end of the episode. I truly hope that you enjoyed all of the wisdom that she shared around compassionate communication and maybe you can see some ways that you can bring this in and start to incorporate it and start to be really honest with yourself. Are you speaking up and asking for your needs to be met? Are you even 100% sure what your needs are? I think that this whole episode just raises some great questions for us to cultivate that even deeper self-awareness and start to recognize this is what I need and I'm ready to ask for it. So all of the resources that Kate has mentioned are linked in the show notes. And I really think this is just such a valuable topic, as I said in the intro, to be able to link to families, to colleagues, to businesses, to clients, to customers, to partners in everything. The communication piece is so, so key. So thank you once again for tuning in. I hope that you enjoyed listening to this as much as I enjoyed recording it with Kate. And I will be back with you next week for more Ambitious Introverts. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. I hope that you're feeling expanded to what's possible for you, motivated to take action and inspired about how you can start to own your energy. I share even more tools and resources on my introverts only email newsletter. By signing up, you not only get early access to the ambitious introvert products and services, but you also get brand new podcast episodes delivered straight to your inbox every Monday, meaning you'll never miss your weekly dose of introvert-friendly inspiration. Sign up now at theambitiousintrovert.com newsletter or click the link in the show notes. See you next week.